Major delay for the Massey Tunnel replacement. We're looking at another 10 years of gridlock with the George Massey Tunnel as it sits today. Big improvements on the way, but commuters will have to wait until 2030. Pressure on BC to adopt the third shot. It's clear going forward that booster shots are going to be needed. As other provinces push ahead with boosters, unprotected patients here want it too. And slippery when wet turns 35. The Vancouver connection to one of the biggest albums of the 1980s. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We'll get to those stories in just a moment, but we begin with breaking news and a warning from Vancouver police. Officers are investigating a series of gropings involving three young girls. Our Nithu Karacha is live in Vancouver with the details. Nithu. Sophie, VPD is issuing what's become a bit of a familiar warning to women in the city to be cautious and aware of their surroundings. After two incidents near the busy uh, seawall along False Creek, uh, they involve a disturbing act and making it worse is the age of those who police say were violated. The VPD says three girls were groped on Tuesday afternoon by a stranger on a bike. It started at Granville Island around 4.30. Two girls, both 11 years old, were walking near the sea wall when a man on a bike passed them and groped one of the girls. Police believe he then followed the victims to the area of West Six and Birch where he groped the second girl. About half an hour later, a 15-year-old was running on the seawall near Science World when she too was touched inappropriately. Now, the suspect from the Granville Island incident was described as a five foot four Asian man in his 30s with black framed glasses. He was wearing a blue hat, gray T-shirt and dark shorts. He appeared unkempt and was riding a red and white bike. The suspect description from the second incident near Science World is similar. Here's more from Sergeant Steve Addison. We believe that there may be other people who uh, have information about this, who have not come forward and we're asking them to come forward. It's quite possible there are other victims out there uh, who may have also been groped yesterday, who for whatever reason decided not to call the police. Uh, we encourage them if they, if they would like to call the police, uh, please do and we can uh, launch an investigation to that. Um, at this point, it's still the early stages of the investigation. Uh, we don't have all the facts, but we felt that it was important to get this information out now uh, for public safety and to ensure that anybody else who is out uh, know, has this information and can make appropriate decisions about their safety. And this comes amid what the VPD is calling a significant increase in sexual assaults in the city. And as you heard there, the investigation into these most recent reports is in the early stages. They don't yet know if the two incidents are linked, but they're asking any other potential victims to come forward and contact police. Back to you. Pretty disturbing. All right. Thanks for that, uh, Nithu. The NDP government is finally unveiling its plans for replacing the aging Massey Tunnel. And the reaction is mixed, to say the least. The current tunnel is now more than 60 years old. It's Metro Vancouver's worst traffic bottleneck. The replacement tunnel isn't going to open until 2030, eight years after the bridge that was cancelled by the New Democrats was set to open. Richard Zussman reports. It's described as Metro Vancouver's worst bottleneck, the aging Massey Tunnel. Now the BC government hoping to alleviate the pressure. We will be building a new eight-lane immersed tube tunnel to replace the George Massey Tunnel on Highway 99. The cost? 
$4.15 billion. And the province is hoping Ottawa will help, although no checks have been signed. We've made the case that this is a nationally significant uh, trade corridor. From my point of view, it's very similar to the Gordie Howe Bridge in Ontario and the Champlain Bridge in Quebec. Uh, the only difference is this one's in British Columbia. It will be four lanes each way, one saved for rapid bus. So that means in the morning rush hour, there will be three lanes headed from Delta to Richmond. The exact same as right now, making it unclear how much time drivers will save. We're not gaining much by going with an eight-lane uh, tunnel immersed in the Fraser River as opposed to a 10-lane bridge. Originally, the Liberal government approved a 10-lane bridge. It would have been done next year. But the current government's arguing the tunnel is better. Endorsed by the Metro Vancouver Board, limiting the visual distractions of a bridge, and it has a lower impact on the environment. An environmental assessment is still needed, plus consultation work with First Nations. We are pleased that the province is taking our concerns about this project seriously regarding environmental impacts on the river. We are pleased to see that there's an announcement today, but really encourage all the parties to work as quickly as possible to, to ensure that this is a smooth process and that it does get completed. Drivers will have to decide whether the benefits outweigh the eight years extra wait. A solution is a solution, but I don't think that Richmondites and Ladnerites are going to be happy with that solution. How many years have passed now and now they're just coming out with us now, so I hope I'm around in 2030. Yeah, 2030. <laughs> And one of the reasons why cars won't be able to go through the new tunnel until 2030 is the environmental assessment is expected to take three and a half years. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Well, two provinces are making major changes to their COVID vaccination programs that will allow some people to get a third dose. But as Aaron MacArthur reports, B.C. is in no rush to follow Ontario or Saskatchewan saying the priority in this province is to get everyone who is eligible fully vaccinated first. Within a matter of weeks, vulnerable people in Ontario will have access to a third shot of COVID-19 vaccine. Evidence now showing a booster improves protection. We found that with two doses of uh, mRNA vaccine that you just don't get the protection you need if your immune system is weak. Ontario not waiting for recommendations from the federal government. Neither is Saskatchewan, joining Quebec to offer a third shot to people who mixed and matched AstraZeneca with an mRNA shot. BC's plan in the short term remains to get as many people protected as possible. A statement from the Ministry of Health says the protection from COVID-19 vaccines continues to be excellent for many months. It goes on to say that developments will be monitored and the approach can be adjusted as needed. Little consolation for transplant patients, like Gerald Baird, who although fully vaccinated, worries he doesn't have any protection at all. My liver people have told me that I'm not allowed to be in contact with anyone that's not vaccinated. So, And that includes some family members too, you know, so it's stressful times. Infectious disease experts say a third booster will likely be needed for everyone eventually. But unlike in the U.S. where the third shot is being recommended now, the priority should continue to be to get more people protected with first and second shots. Long-term care residents and anyone else who is at higher risk of severe COVID infection cannot get it if there are so few people out there that are susceptible 
to becoming infected in the first. Experts are predicting a difficult fall and winter, not only with COVID, but with increases in the usual respiratory infections as well. Protecting the most vulnerable will be a challenge for the entire healthcare system. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Now taking a look at BC's COVID-19 numbers for the last 24 hours, we have 553 new cases and 5,580 active cases with 107 people in hospital, 53 of those patients in ICU. Sadly, we have lost one more person to complications from the virus. On the vaccination front, 73.8% of people aged 12 and older are now fully vaccinated. And Keith Baldry joins us with some fresh data on where we're seeing all these new cases. Keith? Yeah, the maps just came out. The weekly update from the Center for Disease Control showing where the most COVID cases have been for the week, August 8th to 14th. So relatively recent numbers. And as we've been reporting for some time, Central Okanagan off the charts here, folks. Almost 1,000 cases in that short time frame. But also Metro Vancouver seeing a spike as well. Vancouver and Surrey up consistently uh, over previous weeks. And then we go back to the interior. Other interior towns starting to see significant numbers. Kamloops, Nelson and Vernon. The concern there in some of these smaller towns, Sophie, is they've got smaller hospitals and smaller hospital, fewer hospital beds and fewer ICU beds. We're already seeing a concern expressed in some of the Kootenai hospitals that uh, they may be overwhelmed with ICU numbers because they really don't have many ICU beds. So again, interesting to see these, these cases track across the province, but Central Okanagan, even with the circuit breaker in, in place, continues to be a big source of COVID-19. The number we really want to see go up is those vaccinations, and hopefully Mm -hmm. they will continue to do so. Keith, thank you. The B.C. Human Rights Commission is launching its first-ever province-wide investigation. It will examine the disturbing increase in anti-Asian and other racist incidents that occurred during the pandemic. Romina Dea has the details. When the lady passed by me, pulled a leftover cup to my face and said something like, you Chinese, those kind of things. Excuse me? Why we don't Excuse like me? Disturbing, dangerous, dehumanizing. You brought the coronavirus in this country and you're killing our people. An outbreak of hate on the rise during the pandemic. The number one target, Asians. Since the onset of the pandemic, there have been more than 1,500 incidents of anti-Asian racism reported to EliminateHate.org and COVIDRacism.ca. And BC continues to report the most incidents per capita in North America. BC's Human Rights Commissioner, Kasari Govender, says the focus of the province's first public inquiry by her office will be to determine why there's been an explosion of hate during the pandemic and how to prevent it in future crises. In my view, hate often stems from a fear of losing power a fear that is aggravated during times of great uncertainty. A public inquiry has no legal power. It is not a court of law. There will be no findings of guilt or liability. Any recommendations to government, employers, service providers will not be legally binding. Having brought back the Human Rights Commission, they would take seriously the recommendations. It really 
will be, I think, uh, very politically tricky and embarrassing if the government doesn't attend to the recommendations. I prefer to have English or French or German than have a Chinese in this country. Those who have experienced hate will give evidence, along with anti-racism groups and experts. The inquiry will commence this fall after the federal election. The final report, which will be made public, will go to the legislature a year from now. Ramina Dea, Global News. Their town in ruins. Residents of Lytton want someone held accountable. They've always believed the wildfire that destroyed their homes was sparked by the rail line. The class action lawsuit they just launched to prove it. And the latest on the White Rock Lake fire. Next on the News Hour. Big news from the BC Lions. A new owner and his plan to get fans back in the stands. Also ahead, a homeowner startled by a bear in the backyard. But wait till you see what it did next. That's later. Right now, though, as more and more victims of the 2021 wildfire season return to sift through the ashes of their homes, there are more questions about the management of the response. And we are learning some new details in a leaked memo written by the BC Wildfire Service. Amadagahi is live in Monty Lake with more on that memo. Uh, Imad, it indicates the Wildfire Service knew early this summer that it was facing a serious challenge with resources. Yeah, and it's too early to know for sure if any potential resource challenges are to blame for all the devastation we have been seeing in communities like Monty Lake, where all you have to do is drive this highway to see multiple burnt structures and homes like the one behind me. But one thing that is becoming clearer by the day is that people in the central Okanagan are throwing a lot of support behind the firefighters that are on the ground, giving it their all. What's left here? Um, well, nothing that's salvageable. Everything here is a reminder of a fire season that will change not only their lives, but their community forever. When we <laughs> left, our yard was already on fire, so we were pretty sure we lost our house before we even got out of the driveway. It was like a tornado. It was just a tornado of smoke and fire and debris. That fire was a beast, and it was going to take whatever it wanted to take. And despite losing everything, Kellyanne Cobb says her support for BC firefighters has not wavered. What she cannot help but to question is if they have enough help. You can't blame the firemen who are on the ground when you've got, they've got bosses and their bosses have bosses and, and who forgot about us up here? The White Rock Lake Fire, one of BC's largest and most destructive, still burns out of control at 810 square kilometers, having already wiped out homes in multiple communities. Now, according to an internal memo dated one day before the fire was discovered, it appears the BC Wildfire Service made an urgent plea for more resources. Although the government has constantly disputed suggestions from opposition MLAs and the regional district about unpreparedness. There are over 1,000 contractors uh, working on the fires in British Columbia. And to suggest that uh, Wildfire Service has been leaving resources uh, idle in other provinces is simply false and not true. The BC Wildfire Service has been preparing for this, uh, for this fire season since well before the fire season started. Meanwhile, in Vernon, hundreds each day line the streets to show hardworking firefighters their appreciation. Because it's the least we can do right now. They're fighting fires out there. They're risking their lives.
I imagine that's a welcome sight for those firefighters in Mud. How are they reacting to that support? Yeah, in my call with Fire Information Officer Forrest Tower this morning, he told me that support you saw there means everything for firefighters. Those firefighters sometimes coming straight from the front lines of battling flames to, and hearing that, it, it's, he says it brings some crews to tears, crews that have been at this for more than two months now and are giving it their all despite the mm-hmm. unprecedented conditions here. Incredible work. All right, thanks for that. I'm Madagahi reporting tonight. Well, a huge sigh of relief and also a lot of gratitude for firefighters from residents of West Kelowna's Glen Rosa neighborhood. Surveillance video shows just how close the flames came late Sunday night as the fast-moving Mount Law wildfire forced more than 450 families to leave their homes. Crews from eight municipal fire departments and the wildfire service rapidly converged on the fire and in the end, only one home was damaged. I honestly thought that this whole street was going to be gone. It burned right up to the bottom of our, our fence line down there. Well, I'm so, I'm so grateful, you know, to our, to our fire department and all those that have helped out. I mean, it could have been a lot worse. 17 homes remain under evacuation order, and while everyone else has been allowed to return home, they remain under an evacuation alert as the fire is still classified as out of control. Well, the devastating wildfire that destroyed the town of Lytton and killed two people has now spawned a proposed class action lawsuit. As Grace Key reports, one resident who lost everything is suing CN and CP Rail, claiming what many in her community believe that a train started that fire. This was Carol Moseyevich back in June as she and her partner desperately fled the fire that destroyed Lytton. This is the basement. Carol lived in Lytton for 10 years and in one day she lost her home, her business and her cat Allie in the fire. I lost all my, my lifetime of work, all my clothes that I've collected, you know those kind of things and books that you just treasure and things like that and photographs of course. Carol is now part of a proposed class action lawsuit against CN and CP Rail. The civil suit claims the Lytton fire was caused by heat or sparks from a freight train where the CN Rail Bridge crosses the Fraser River. How we know is because we've got some very very good eyewitnesses. We also have photographs taken by somebody whose house was burned The suit claims the defendants should have known that it was unsafe to run trains through Lytton during the record high heat and windy conditions. And it lists a number of failures, including failing to douse the area with a water train, remove dry brush near tracks, and maintaining braking systems to prevent sparks. In a July 16 statement, CP noted the Transportation Safety Board investigation into a cause could take up to two years, adding at this preliminary stage, any conclusions or speculation regarding any cause of the Lytton fire or conscious Contribution factor is premature. And CP has found nothing to indicate that any of the CP trains or equipment that passed through Lytton caused or contributed to the fire. I don't want to go back because I, unless I can see that they really honestly really think are going to be considerate of the needs and the safety of the people who live along, I, they just need to be human. None of the allegations have been proven in court. The railways have 21 days to respond. Grace Key, Global News. And coming up later, no refunds even in the fire zone. How can we be fine if we don't know what's going to happen on the way? Vacationers stuck in limbo with a VRBO booking they can't get out of, even as wildfires rage nearby. 
Also tonight, a woman injured in a crash exposes a major flaw in the province's new no-fault insurance. Slow and steady in both directions tonight at the Alex Fraser Bridge. You're still going to see just some minor congestion eastbound on the east-west connector from Knight to the S-curve. From Home to Car Insurance, BCAA's local experts are here for all your insurance needs. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Well, as wildfires rage across B.C., people with vacation rentals booked in the interior are now facing an impossible choice. Travel against provincial advice or skip the trip and lose their money. Neither sounds good, and Consumer Matters reporter Andrew joins us now with more on the Catch-22. Thanks, Chris. With the center Okanagan in the grips of a COVID outbreak and wildfires also threatening parts of the North Okanagan, the province is urging against non-essential travel to both areas, and that is many British Columbians scrambling to cancel their late August bookings. Siobhan Figura planned a family vacation in Sycamus more than a year ago. She and seven others are booked at a VRBO rental property for one week starting this Friday. It's north of the Sycamus evacuation alert area, so late last month before the travel advisory Siobhan tried to cancel the almost $3,000 booking but was denied a refund. She wants to do the right thing and not travel and is hoping for a compromise so they're not out of pocket for the entire vacation. She says the host is telling them to come and the fire poses no risk. It was more like once you get here you'll be fine but we were con our concern is how do we get there? And how, how can we be fine if we don't know what's going to happen on the way? I've been actually been lost a couple of nights sleep about this, twisting back and forth of whether or not should we should we just go, take the risk, or do we scrap the whole thing and lose the $2,700? We just don't know what to do. Now, VRBO says wildfires do not override the cancellation policy set by the host and agreed to by the guest. In Siobhan's case, it allows for a full refund if you cancel at least 60 days before the booking date and a 50% refund if you cancel at least 30 days before check-in, but no refund if you cancel less than 30 days before the first day of your stay. Airbnb says its extenuating circumstances policy has been activated for reservations in impacted areas of BC, Hosts and guests with eligible reservations can cancel penalty-free. Now, this policy applies to reservations booked prior to July 23rd, but travel advisories and government guidance are not covered. And since we last spoke to Siobhan, she says the host has agreed to refund her 50% and told her he will refund the mandatory, or rather the remainder, of the rental property if it gets booked. It's important to note that vacation rental hosts have the right to not grant you a full or partial refund if you do not cancel within the 30 to 60 day grace period. VRBO also recommends people consider travel insurance that provides coverage for unforeseen events to help protect their vacation plans. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters.globalnews.ca. All right, good information. Thanks very much, Ann. A Delta driver injured in a rear-end crash says she's been left out of pocket by ICBC's new no-fault system. Catherine Urquhart has more on why the 61-year-old feels like she's being taken for a ride by the corporation's compensation policy. As 61-year-old Donna Yurkovich recovers from whiplash and spinal injuries, she's speaking out 
about ICBC. Most people don't understand what that no-fault insurance uh, really means. Eight weeks ago, Yurkovich was driving east on Ladner Trunk Road near Highway 17A when she was struck by an on-duty Delta police officer. I was at a dead stop and he hit me from behind with those big grill bars in the front of his car. The massage therapist was off work for two weeks, then went back part-time. It has resulted in a huge financial hit. Three weeks ago, ICBC informed me that they do not cover the first eight days of lost income. Under the previous ICBC system, Yurkovich could have recouped that money. Historically, what would happen uh, would be people would be able to consult the assistance of a lawyer or uh, you know, an advocate to help them manage the paperwork. And then the shortfall would be recovered at the end of you know, the healing period. ICBC told Global News, if you're hurt in a crash and unable to work, enhanced care will help you continue to cover your daily costs and bills, paying 90% of your net income up to $100,000, adding there is a seven-day waiting period before income replacement kicks in. Personal injury lawyers say this leaves the self-employed and many others financially vulnerable. Those losses now are going to remain at the feet of the person who is injured in a car accident. That first week of loss and then the 90% is not recoverable. Yurkovich is now out thousands of dollars and says the system is unjust. No, it's really, really unfair. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Federal election campaign swings through Vancouver with big promises for everything from wildfire fighting to affordable housing. Plus, a one-on-one interview with NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. And later in sports, that bombshell in the BC Lions organization, the new owner taking over. Counterflow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel. You've got two lanes north and two lanes south and no delays either way. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. On the campaign trail, both Liberal Party leader Justin Trudeau and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh are campaigning in the Vancouver area. Trudeau, pressed on his response to the crisis in Afghanistan, is trying to clarify his promise to resettle 20,000 Afghan refugees in Canada following the Taliban's takeover of the country. The Liberal leader called the situation fluid and extremely difficult, but says his goal remains to get as many people out safely as possible. The number is actually 21,000 if we're being specific about our goal because there are 6,000 special uh, immigration measures uh, individuals who have direct connections to Canada and uh, 15,000 more human rights activists, journalists, people who uh, could be interested that we will have uh, a category for. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh focused on affordable housing while campaigning in Burnaby, vowing to make it easier for buyers to get into the market. 
Well, week one on the campaign trail and the NDP is making it clear its sights are set on reclaiming lost turf here in B.C. In a one-on-one with NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, Nitu Garcha discusses how his party is addressing economic growth, housing affordability and how it plans to pay for its promises. Well, we've seen some effective uh, use of taxation by the BC NDP. They put in place a foreign buyer's tax. We want to put that in in place at the federal level across Canada. A 20% foreign buyer's tax would help us take some of the big money out 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 of the competition so that people aren't competing against big money when they try to buy a home. Uh, The second piece of our plan is to really double down on building more homes. After the World Wars, we saw Canada make a decision to build lots of affordable homes. Many of those homes, those post-World War homes, we see across Vancouver, those Vancouver specials. We want to invest in building more homes that are within people's budgets, looking at building affordable rental, looking at uh, non-profit homes and cooperative homes, uh, cooperative housing. There are lots of options. It really takes the courage to make that decision. I want to talk more about the platform in a moment, but first, let's talk about this campaign that we're in in the very early stages of right now. You have slammed Liberal leader Justin Trudeau for calling the snap pandemic election, but you seem to have no problem campaigning to support B.C.'s Premier John Horgan when he did the same. Why didn't you speak out against that election the way you are about this one? Well, in June, we had a vote in the House of Commons, and the vote was on whether or not we should have an election in this pandemic. 327 MPs voted that we should not have an election in this pandemic, with only one MP voting that we should have an election. In that 327 MPs, Justin Trudeau himself voted saying he would not have an election in this pandemic. So he's effectively walked away from a commitment that he made not to have an election while we're still in this pandemic. So I look at that and say, why did he make that commitment if he's only going to walk away from it? But Mr. Singh, with all due respect, and I apologize for interrupting, you have also called this irresponsible and unsafe to be calling this election during a pandemic. Are you saying Mr. Horgan was also wrong to have called an election here in B.C.? How is how is that any different? Well, we had a vote on this. It's very different in that we had a vote on this very issue. And Justin Trudeau voted saying that we should not have an election. He made that vote in Parliament just in June and then a couple of months later walked away from that commitment. That is a very stark example of him knowing very well. Justin Trudeau knew that's why he voted against this or voted against having an election. And then to turn around and walk away from that is very hypocritical and is breaking a commitment. Is it not hypocritical as well for you to call out Liberal leader Justin Trudeau for endangering Canadian safety by holding this campaign right now when you did the same? Well, it's very different when we've got a, a, a Justin Trudeau who actually voted a certain way and admitted that it was the wrong thing to do and committed to not having an election. I'm just calling him out on the commitment that he made. What has changed now that would give Canadians confidence that the NDP can actually responsibly manage the country's finances and grow the economy post-pandemic? We're the only party with a credible plan to say, why don't we make the billionaires start paying their fair share? Why don't we make Amazon, companies that are like Amazon, that have record profits in the pandemic, start actually contributing fairly so we can invest in people? We're the only ones with that credible plan. What do you say to concerns that those companies will then stop investing in this country or about offshore wealth and even being able to collect those taxes? Well, we can, we can do this. And it's really a matter of having the courage to do so. Uh, we know that other countries have already led the way. France has put in place a 3% tax on revenue of companies like Amazon, acknowledging that no company, no foreign company should be able to make profits 
in our own country and not pay their fair share? Why would we give an advantage to a foreign company over local Canadian companies? And so it can be done. It requires courage. And new Democrats have that courage. So all the challenges that people are faced with, whether it's housing or worries about the climate crisis or making sure healthcare is there for people and covers you from head to toe, things that people care about, the liberals and conservatives have simply failed. New Democrats are committed. We believe in investing in people and putting people first. And you can watch the whole interview with Neetu and federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh online at globalnews.ca slash bc. In Health Matters tonight, a COVID outbreak has been declared at BC Hydro's Site C Dam project. There, has been, there have been 41 confirmed cases among employees across the site. The active cluster of cases primarily among unvaccinated workers. There are currently 32 active cases and more than 110 close contacts are in self-isolation. This is the second outbreak at the site this year. Health officials have determined there is no need to shut the project down, but additional safety measures will be put in place. Just ahead, a flashback to one of the biggest acts of the 1980s. Little known studio called Little Mountain in the city of Vancouver. How John Bon Jovi has never forgotten the Vancouver producers who helped his band give love a bad name. Also ahead, a backyard bear not afraid of the camera or anything else for that matter. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Uncle Fester is all grown up. <laughs> this is the giant corpse flower. The corpse flower. Oh, bloomed. Yeah. It's going to stink in there. At the Bloedel Conservatory, yeah. It, it apparently has been described as rotting meat or mm-hmm. something like that, or stinky socks. That's how it attracts flies and and helps with pollination, apparently. (laughs) Isn't nature amazing? Stop and smell the flower. Hope nobody's eating their dinner right now. (laughs) It's very appetizing. We don't have smell-o-vision, so it's okay. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful scene uh, behind you, Yvonne. Yeah, it's gorgeous. We'll just have the sunset this evening just after 8 o'clock, around 8.24 officially. We had some breaks in there through the day today, and it'll be similar as we get in through the day tomorrow. But there is some cloud cover overnight tonight. We'll be down to 15 degrees. Tomorrow, more breaks, partly cloudy by the afternoon, and a warm one. 24 with the humidex, it's going to feel like 28 degrees, and then dry conditions will take us in towards the evening. Smoky skies bulletin, we're still seeing that smoke across the region. It extends in towards the Fraser Canyon, all of the Okanagan Valley boundary, as well as the Sulcan and Arrow Lakes, will continue to see smoke, unfortunately, over the next 24 and 48 hours. This is the fire weather index, and this is a snapshot taken for tomorrow. This is just showing the intensity of the current wildfires that are going to burn, and we are going to see that intensity, especially for the southern half of the Okanagan near Soyuz. That's an area of concern, and we also have some instability for tomorrow, and I'll show you more in just a moment. A few isolated showers right now across the central half of the province, the northeastern corners. I'm spotting a lightning strike, but it's for tomorrow. The area of concern will be for the southern interior. The rain will stay along the northern half of the province, coastal areas overnight through the day for tomorrow, and then the southern half and towards the interior will see the risk of thunderstorms popping up through the afternoon and early evening. Lightning will be a big concern, and we are going to see the winds more of a northerly direction, fanning the fires tomorrow and some of the flames and anywhere up to 20 kilometers per hour. Now, here's a quick glance at what we're anticipating for the northern half. 
We do have some rain and heavy at times along the coast. A slight risk of a thunderstorm will be for the northeastern corners. Much of the southern interior tomorrow, it'll be the risk of thunderstorms still warming up into the mid and upper 20s. And along the south coast, some cloud cover in the morning, breaks towards the afternoon. Humidex tomorrow will feel like 28 degrees, a bit unsettled. Friday leading into the weekend, we could see some isolated showers, not a complete washout, but there is some cloud cover in the mix as well. All right, tonight's weather window, this is a great shot sunset that was taken in Chilliwack and this one taken by Emily. Guys, looks like watercolor painting. Thank you, Yvonne and Emily. Mm -hmm. Some amazing and slightly unsettling footage of a close encounter with a bear near Prince George. Yes, Gerwin Yu and a co-worker were working at a home near Tabor Lake just outside Prince George on Monday when they spotted a bear in the backyard. He recorded video from the safety of the house and then things got a little more interesting. Yes, the bear, possibly smelling the lunch that they were eating, decided to try to get in. When the first window prevented that, Gerwin says the bear circled the house and tried almost every other window. After about five minutes, it gave up, wandered around the backyard again, and then left. Unsatisfied that it didn't get the cuddles it was hoping for. Is that what it was looking for? Somehow I doubt it. Oh, Scary. Oh boy. I've said before, there's an advantage to living in an apartment. I've yet to see <laughs> a bear figure out an elevator yet. That's true. From bears to lions, Squire. Very good. Uh-huh. Yes. We just see tigers now. Uh, oh my. <laughs> the uh, BC Lions have a new owner in Amar Doman, a local guy who loves the lions and wants them to be a big deal again. And the CFL, I believe, needs a bit of a reboot, and I think I'm the guy to do it. He believes he's the right guy for the job, and being a local owner is a great start. And later, the 35th anniversary of Bon Jovi's 80s rock and roll masterpiece, Slippery When Wet, and how the album got its name. beginning of a new era for the BC Lions. Yes, uh, in fact, it was a very long search to get a new owner, but the BC Lions have finally been sold. Amar Dolman, CEO of the Dolman Building Materials Corporation and the Futura Corporation, has bought the team from the Braley family. Of course, David Braley died last year. He had tried to sell the club when he was alive, but he could never agree on a price with anyone. No word yet on what Dolman paid for the Lions, but it looks like He's a good guy to have in charge. He is local. He loves the CFL. He knows owning the BC Lions is not a way to make a lot of money, but he believes he can turn things around from a marketing standpoint. Here we have the man who runs the plays for the BC Lions and the man who now calls the shots for the BC Lions. Amar Dolman paid a visit to his new employees today as owner of the BC Lions. Uh, I like to rebuild things. I think this needs a rebuild, a community touch. And the CFL, I believe, needs a bit of a reboot. And I think I'm the guy to do it. Dolman had been looking to buy the BC Lions for a number of years. He's been a Lions fan since he was a kid. Gosh, probably when I was 10 years old. So uh, I've loved the Lions ever since. Um, they're just, uh, you know, this day to me is sort of uh, it's surreal to be able to say we own the club. Um, it's in good hands. I just think for, for BC, for the BC Lions and BC Lions fans and the whole organization, this is the beginning of something really special. The BC Lions had been owned by the late David Braley since 1997. They won three Grey Cups under him. But in recent years, attendance at BC Place had fallen. 
It's something that Amar Dolman thinks he can change. I'm prepared to put dollars into this team, uh, as most owners are right now in the CFL, putting money back in um, and get those marketing strategies out there. And there's a lot of ideas on the table. And, you know, uh, David being ill, I think some of the things we're sitting a little bit that I can re-energize. So we're not going to be afraid to invest in the club uh, to get that out there. It's not going to happen without investment, and I'm the guy. Amar Dolman is not only proud to be a local guy owning the local team, but also being the first South Asian owner of the BC Lions. Very proud, very proud for the community. Um, my grandparents came from India 100 years ago, 1906. Uh, very, very proud. My grandfather was a logger on Vancouver Island, so we have a lot of deep history here, and there's a lot of deep Asian community here, as you mentioned. Uh, I think I can definitely connect with those guys. If I can, who can I connect with? So uh, absolutely will. And I'll be leaning on them to get uh, down to BC Place. And he knows turning the Lions around is not going to be easy, and it's not going to happen overnight. To me, this isn't about one season. This is about the next 25, 30 years in rebuilding the brand. Uh, There's a lot of different factors that have to go in to get this going again. It won't happen overnight, but we've got a good start just getting fans back in the seats after COVID. So the CFL is back, which is great. So number one, uh, at least we can start that. But it will be a labor of love for sure. But uh, I do like challenges, and I also like having the best people around me to, to drive those challenges and work as a team to get the job done. I have a good feeling about that guy. All right. Vancouver Whitecaps down in Austin tonight. Now, this is a team you would think they should be able to beat. Austin doesn't score many goals. Have a chance here, but they don't succeed. At the other end, the Whitecaps have a chance as well. Caicedo with moves. I know. It was great, but it didn't end the way you want it. But Austin has just scored one nothing for the home team over the Whitecaps. Okay. I guess this is like the uh, Blue Jays against the Expos, except now it's the Blue Jays against the Washington Nationals. Jose Barrios, first inning, rough start. Juan Soto, home run. Three-run variety. It's 3-0 for Washington. But, of course, we all know that's how the Jays like to score, by knocking balls over walls. Marcus Simeon with one. Marcus Simeon with two. And the Jays have a 5-4 lead now in the seventh inning. But sometimes you not only live by the home run, you die by the home run. Josh Bell, he also puts one in the cheap seats where hardly anybody is. 8-5 the final for Washington over Toronto. Yes, now Marsha wants a hot dog. So do I. (laughs) And a beer. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thanks, Squire. Up next, celebrating rock and roll history made right here in Vancouver. What brought Bon Jovi to town 35 years ago? Stay with us. This is a special day. It is, and it's making a lot of people feel old. (laughs) Because it's been 35 years since the album Slippery When Wet was released. August 18th, 1986. That's when it was released. Amazing. Squire, do you have your mic on? I'd like to have it on. Oh, yeah, I would like to see a picture of you. I'm on. I'm most definitely on. Right now as we're talking to you. Thank you, Val. Yes, uh, August 18th, 1986 is when it was released. It, of course, was recorded in Vancouver. Spent eight weeks at number one. Was the top-selling album of 1987. And a lot of people, even those who weren't around then, could probably sing a couple of the songs from Slippery When Wet.
Slippery When Wet was one of the biggest selling albums of the 1980s, and it made Bon Jovi superstars and Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. And even though the band is from New Jersey, they have never forgotten how much of a role Vancouver played in making this record. That record would change our lives. There was the magic combination of our band, Bruce Fairburn, Bob Rock, a little-known studio called Little Mountain in the city of Vancouver. That's right. Inside this rather plain-looking building, 35 years ago, Bon Jovi made their masterpiece. And they came to Vancouver because they were enamored with the Loverboy records that had been made at Little Mountain Sound with Bob Rock and Bruce Fairburn. Richie Zambora that, that, you know, liked Honeyman Suite and Loverboy and told John about us as I, as I found out. Many years later, that it was Richie that said, we got to get these guys. And Bruce Fairburn's skill for making records on time and on budget meant Slippery When Wet produced a big return on a small investment. We made Slippery When Wet, I think, which is the really successful Bon Jovi record, for, um, I think it was like 100, just right around $100,000. They were in their prime. They were young. They, were the, they had just finished writing great songs. You know, and it was perfect for Bruce and I. Like, if you think about it, living on a prayer, you could play that in a club today with kids, and they still love it. It's one of those songs like Don't Stop Believing" that stands the test of time. And it wasn't just Little Mountain's sound that contributed to Slippery When Wet. As we found out in 2014, the album's name came from the many nights that Bon Jovi hung out at the venerable Number 5 Orange. There were actually a credit on their album cover. Their name, they claim, come from us. When the DJ said, careful, sweetie, the ladder is slippery when wet coming down. So, In the end, Slippery When Wet didn't just change Bon Jovi's fortunes. It made Little Mountain Sound and Vancouver the place to be if you wanted to make a hit record in the 80s and early 90s. So for sure, then all... All eyes went to, what's this place? What's Vancouver? Where is that? Like, you know, I don't think we're even on the map. And that definitely put Vancouver on the map. Such a great album. (laughs) And the legend of Little Mountain lives on. They still talk about it. And they came back and made another album at Little Mountain, which was pretty successful, called New Jersey in 1988. I think Bad Medicine was on that one. Nice. Yeah. And they have an age. John hasn't aged at all. Not at all. None Not of us all. have, Yvonne. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. the urge to break out into song now. That's true. All right, have a great night, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow.